We're back on Date with the Night, and joining me is one of the prominent voices that spearheaded the early 90s riot girl movement, whose feminist zines, girl germs, and riot girl inspired a generation of young people, specifically young women, and who will be touring for the first time in 20 years with their iconic feminist punk rock band Bratmobile. Today, I welcome singer, songwriter, and podcaster, Allison Wolf. How are you today, Allison? Hi, I'm great. I'm in my PJs and loving it. Nice, nice. I am in overalls that are splattered with paint because I was painting earlier today, but it's kind of the look I feel. Oh, that's cool. I was listening to a lot of Bratmobile today and I'm a huge fan. And it's really exciting that you're reuniting after 20 years. What has that process been like for you? (laughs) It's wild. We actually did play a private party in July for 2019 for Toby Vale from Bikini Kill. It was her 50th birthday party. Oh, sweet. That was in Olympia, Washington. So we did get back together and practice twice for that. It was a short set. It was less than 10 songs. But this is like the first time we're getting back together in, yeah, what what was it? I don't know. I can't even count, but 20-something years to do like public shows. A lot of the bands that you're performing with are also reuniting as well. La Tigra, Gravy Train, during the pandemic was this sort of like a decision was like, all right, let's get the community back together and like have some fun. No, no, (laughs) (laughs) no, none of that was going on. I actually have up until recently never stopped playing in bands and playing music. So I have been in bands pretty much consistently from Bratmobile the first time around until I guess just a little bit before the pandemic. Yeah. Bratmobile is the band that has the most cachet and whatnot. And I guess it's the one that people always would ask (laughs) to get back together. And Mosswood Meltdown in Oakland, California, that festival, they've been asking us for several years now to play. And I DJed Mosswood last year and it was really fun. I got to see what it was really like. I have been wanting to get back together, but I'm also always game to play. I mean, honestly, if any of my bands ever ask and want to get back together, I want to. So I just want to play. Yeah, that's the spirit. What goes into an Alice and Wolf DJ set? Oh, yes. Well, I guess by default, female-fronted bands for the most part, but from all different eras and styles, I guess. So I'll play like, you know, kind of 60s doo-wop and R&B and stuff, as well as punk and indie and new wave and stuff like that from the 70s, 80s, 90s. I like to find cool mashups on YouTube. (laughs) Hell yeah, that's the best place to find them, honestly. Right? But you have to start through so many. So I found some cool ones. So sometimes I'll play those and people are like, whoa, what's that? And they think I mixed it myself. I'm like, no, I just found it and downloaded it. Have you been um, bombarded with any of those AI-generated songs yet? No, but my students have been talking about it. By the way, I teach a class at UCLA to undergrads. It's music journalism with a focus on audio, like radio podcasts. And I just started. Nice. Every week we get together and I ask what's new in the music news. And so they're actually filling me in on all the IA created songs and whatnot, or AI, IA. Yeah, Yeah, I've had it recommended to me. It made me take pause because I was like, what is this really boring but slightly strange music? And then I go and I check the artist profile and they have like an album out of 12 songs or potentially even two albums, but they were released all in one year. And then I look them up and I can't find that much information, but they already have a lot of followers. And you look into it more and you're like, oh, this is AI generated music, but it's not very good. So now you grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Is that correct? 
I'm an identical twin. My sister Cindy and I, we were born in Memphis, but we didn't live in Memphis very long, maybe three to four years before we moved to northern Washington state. I'm not totally sure what went behind it, but my mom, I don't think, ever felt very comfortable in the South. Mm -hmm. She was in Memphis when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed. My dad was actually away. He was a doctor in the Vietnam War, so he wasn't there at that particular time. Wow. We weren't born yet, but I think after a while, she was like, I want to get out of the South. I don't want to raise my kids here. Also, my mom was from a poor, working-class Croatian Catholic family. And I think back then, they were frowned upon as well in the South. Yeah. So she was just like, I'm out. They went about as far north as they could go before getting to Canada. So we were um, settled in the Skagit Valley in Mount Vernon, Washington, and lived there until I was like, I don't know, nine or so. My parents divorced when we were around six or seven. And my dad at that point moved back to Tennessee we stayed in Mount Vernon, but then ultimately moved to Olympia, Washington in, I think, 1980, when I was like 10. What was the music scene like in Washington? <laughs> well, I don't know back then. I mean, my mom, after she divorced my dad, she came out as like a hippie, lesbian, vegetarian for, well, for one year she was a vegetarian. She brought you to protests, right? She did. Yeah, she did. Lots of gatherings on women's land and stuff like that. She had a lot of records in the house, and my mom was into music, and she had an acoustic guitar and stuff, and she sang here and there. But I think she had to have an early surgery to remove, I think, her thyroid. Oh, okay, yeah. So, you know, it affected her voice. Yeah. But she still loved music, and so there's lots of Olivia records, records like lesbian folk music and stuff. Joan Baez, tons of Joan Baez. And also Hazel Dickens and Alice Gerard. Nice. We were raised on that, some feminist bluegrass. So that was kind of the stuff we were mostly listening to. But then once we were like in Olympia and then middle school and you start kind of seeking out your own music, we were really into New Wave, which was big. It was the 80s. But that early stuff, you know, like I really loved Bow Wow Wow, especially the Go-Go's, Joan Jett, Missing Persons, maybe like Human League, stuff like that. B-52s for sure. Also Duran Duran. I guess I should admit that. Love Duran Duran. <laughs> My first concert, or our, I always say our, that means my sister and I, because we're twins. So our first concert was Big Country on our birthday, November 9th, when we turned 13 up in Seattle. Yeah, that was pretty funny. My mom just like dropped us off. It's like, later, I'm going to go have dinner <laughs> with my friends. Yeah. <laughs> and when she came back to pick us up, I think all the kids ran out to the alley to the tour bus to try to meet Big Country. And then someone who was working the club was like, uh, the band is inside waiting to sign signatures and y'all are out here like shaking their tour bus. And we're like, <laughs> what? Because to us, they were huge because they were on MTV yeah. and MTV was fairly new to us then. So we we're like, oh, okay. And then I think my sister like grabbed the singer Stuart Adamson's hand or it, she either bit it. I think she kissed him or she bit him. I'm not sure. But I know that my mom by then had come to pick us up and just grabbed us. and was like, God damn it. And just took us out. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And that started your love of music? Yeah. <laughs> and then the following year, we went to Duran Duran, and it was their first arena-sized concert in the U.S., mm -hmm. right after they made the cover of Rolling Stone as the Fab Five. That was an amazing show. Crazy. 
John Taylor actually writes about it in his biography, That Seattle Show. Pretty cool. Lots of screaming girls. I guess uh, everyone was screaming so hard and they couldn't even hear themselves on stage. Oh, wow. That sounds like a really awesome concert. I wish I could go to. Oh, it was amazing. So I was too wimpy to go up front, but my sister and our friend Stacy Woodruff, they pushed their way all the way to the front. I was so jealous. But then they were squished so badly that Stacy actually passed out. Oh, no. And that kept happening. You could just see it from, you know, my nosebleed seats. I could see just little girls passing out and having to get crowd surfed to the front and then <laughs> taken out or something. <laughs> so that happened to our friend Stacy. But yeah, I was jealous there in front of John Taylor. and ugh. That's me. I, I have to push my way to the front, but it definitely <laughs> is a struggle. And sometimes, yeah, people around you do pass out and you're like, oh, <laughs> I think I'm lucky that I'm tall. My head just like is sort of above the crowd. I can reach the oxygen better. <laughs> yeah. But you know, like being into Duran Duran was like, that really didn't make, I think, many girls feel like they could be in bands. It certainly didn't make me feel like I could be in a band. It made me think like, wow, I'm never going to be cute enough to be those models in their videos. Yeah. Even the, the mainstream girl bands that I was listening to didn't necessarily make me feel like I could do it too, because I guess I saw them as big stars or something. It wasn't until I started getting really into the local music scene like when I went alternative, you know, really was like going to local punk shows. And I was fortunate to grow up in the Pacific Northwest at the time that I did because that's where it was all happening. Yeah. Like the bands we got to see all the time were like the Melvins and Nirvana before they were called Nirvana when they were called Skid Row and like Girl Trouble, all these regional bands. You met your bandmate, Molly, at University of Oregon? Yeah, in Eugene, Oregon. We both were undergrads there. We both started there in the late fall of 89. We only lasted about two years there. I loved it. Molly hated it. We were neighbors in the dorms, and we shared a wall between us. She was just, you know, from the East Coaster. She's from Washington, D.C. She kind of talked fast and was very self-assured and political and stuff like that. When I first saw her, she was on the one payphone in the hallway. She was hogging it for like an hour yelling at the top of her lungs, breaking up with some guy. <laughs> yeah, she scared the hell out of me. So I was like, oh, I got to get to know her. So then, yeah, we kind of joined forces and became inseparable. And I feel like she kind of encouraged me to be more politicized. I mean, I was raised political, but at the same time, I guess I never thought of it in a broader context or whatever. I feel like she kind of helped politicize me more in my thinking. And then... I brought the whole DIY music thing to the table, like Olympia, K Records, Be Happening, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I read somewhere that you were influenced by zines that were already like kind of in existence and like bands that were out there like Bikini Kill and Calamity Jane. What was the catalyst for you to A, start your zine, but also start making music? Bikini Kill actually wasn't a band for very long before we were. But they definitely were more organized and knew what they were doing more. Kathleen and Toby are like a year older than me, or at least a grade older. And so anyways, we really looked up to them. But I first saw Kathleen perform not in Bikini Kill, but in her band before that, which I think was her first band, but I'm not sure. And it was called Viva Knievel. My sister ended up putting out a four-song EP 7-inch of theirs. So I saw Kathleen like... 
I don't know if it was a show or a practice, but it was a public venue so that she ran. So she was screaming and I walked by and I'm like, whoa, what's she doing? So that really influenced me. And then at the same venue, which is called Reco Muse, Calamity Jane played later that summer. This is all in the summer of 89. And I just saw this all girl band that was kind of snarly from Evergreen State College. And that kind of, you know, left me with an impression as well. But I think a lot of it, too, was, you know, grunge was super thriving already by the late 80s in the Northwest. And while we liked a lot of these bands and went to a lot of the shows, Sub Pop cashed in on this shock value imagery and their bands kind of went along with it or did that as well. And were, I thought, pretty sexist. Yeah. To me, it was grunge was sexism with flannel and long hair. <laughs> so we kind of were like, well, we love these bands musically, but uh, I think we have something to say that they're not saying, you know. And yeah. at the same time was, I think, the Bush seniors first Gulf War was going on. A lot of the guys we knew in the scene were like so afraid of getting drafted, as they should be. But at the same time, we kind of sometimes were like, well, what about the war at home? What about the war on women yeah. that's happening all the time all around us? I mean, that was really what Kathleen was saying. And we were like, yeah. Anyways, Kathleen and Toby would invite us to come up to Olympia a lot and hang out. And there'd just be a lot of talking, politics and whatnot in different people's apartments. They really encouraged us to start a zine and start a band. So we did eventually. We were a band in theory for quite a while. Yeah, I read about your first show in Olympia on Valentine's Day in 1991, like that you were so scared to go on stage because you kind of were new to music, like you were kind of a theoretical band. How did you sort of get to that moment of being on stage and like having enough courage and confidence to be like, okay, I'm going to do this? Well, I think the Olympia music scene, and especially like coming from K Records, they put out these cassettes featuring a lot of bands that weren't your traditional formations, you know, like you had Mecha Normal that was just guitar and vocals, or you had this band Oklahoma Scramble that was, I don't know if it was banjo and vocals, but I know that whatever the singer would sing the exact same notes that the banjo or guitar, whatever was playing, her melodies just followed the melodic instrument line, which I thought was really simple and interesting and sounded great, actually. And then there was a band, Spook and the Zombies, who was Aaron Stoffer, who was later in the band Seaweed. He did this really like sweet acapella songs, really. So all of those things were big influences on us. And this band called The Go Team, the original Go Team from Olympia, Washington that Toby Vale was in and Calvin Johnson, and they would have different guest singers and stuff. And some of those songs that Toby sang, we were really influenced by as well, and Lois Maffeo as well. Listening to all this stuff that was in kind of unusual stripped down formations kind of made us think we could do it too. And a lot of encouragement from all of those same people, really. But still, Calvin really dared us to play our first show. It was Valentine's Day, 1991. And he called us and Eugenia was like, hey, come up and play this show. You'll be opening for Bikini Kill and some Middle Sidewalk. And we were like, what? We can't. We're not a band. <laughs> and he was like, well, you come up here like every other weekend bragging that you're in this band, Bratmobile. So he called our bluff. So we had to do it. A local band, Oswald Flavo and Eugene, let us borrow their practice space and their instruments. But yeah, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And we were like, I guess these are songs. 
But it's not until you're on stage at your first show and you're just looking out in the crowd and you're like, oh my God, are we a band? Wait, are these songs? <laughs> so we probably only played like five songs, but you know, we had the whole support of the community and it just kind of went from there. And then of course, eventually we met up with Aaron Smith, who became our guitar player. And she already was a musician. She actually had been taking guitar lessons and had played guitar for a little while by then. So she was ahead of the game on that with us. And so that definitely made things sound better. Yeah. And you and your bandmates contributed and produced like a famous feminist zine called Girl Germs. And like, I don't know who coined the term, but you were all at the forefront of Riot Girl becoming a moniker. And it's so widely influential, like that's going to be read about in the history books for decades and decades to come. So what was it that you were all coming together to kind of do with this zine and with the Riot Girl movement? Well, I think we started our zine, at least Girl Germs at first, because we weren't a functional band yet. And also because we had wanted to have a radio show on campus in Eugene, but there no, was no college radio there. <laughs> so we'd attend these meetings where we were supposed to get one off the ground, but these hippies were just smoking pot all the time and nothing was happening. So we started a zine instead. But then eventually, it was the summer of 91 when Bikini Kill had toured across the country and ended up in D.C. And then we flew out there and spent the summer in D.C. And we all spent it together. It was like Fugazi, Ulysses, Bikini Kill, Bratmobile, all hanging out and various other friends. Kathleen was like, you know what, we need to get all the girls here together and talk. You know, let's unify. And so she made this little handbill kind of folded fanzine. We called it Riot Girl. It was based on a postcard or some postcards written between me and Molly and this woman, Jen Smith, not Jean Smith from Mechanormal, but Jen Smith, who was later in a band called The Quails. And she lived in D.C. at the time. And she was like, we need to start a girl riot when you guys come back to D.C. this summer. So when we got there, you know, I guess we remembered that phrase and somehow that turned into Riot Girl. But it was also influenced by something that Toby Vale would say a lot. She talked about angry girl zines with multiple R's <laughs> to describe zines that like she did. She had a zine called Jigsaw. Donna Drash had a zine called Chainsaw, early zines. So there was another one called Sister Nobody out of Eugene, I believe. So that's kind of how it got coined. But yeah, we mostly just wanted to connect with the other women in the punk scene in D.C. and just sort of see what they had to say and what their interests were and stuff. Well, eventually this became a big thing because it was reported on in the Rolling Stone and other magazines, and it ended up being a global phenomenon. What was your reaction when it started to move beyond just your community? It was weird. I mean, I don't think we really had intentions for it to go much beyond our scenes or scenes we networked with or whatever. It was really big to us and it was a big deal. And to us, it was our whole world. But, you know, also when you're like 20 or something, <laughs> yeah, whatever you're doing is your whole world and you can't see much beyond it. But anyways, we knew that networking was important and we wanted to network through snail mail, postcards, zines, all that kind of stuff. And by touring and playing shows in DIY spaces across the country. And there was this kind of network. You knew who to go to for each town 
to play. You know, there weren't a lot of options. So you say, oh, you always talk to this one girl or this one guy or whatever, you know. But I guess the whole point really of Riot Girl was to really kind of take over the means of production to represent ourselves. Yeah. So we didn't really see a need for the media at the time. We were like making our own publications and we have our own platform with microphones, you know, and so why do we need these others? And back then too, the media was way more square, right? Like they didn't hardly cover punk or alternative stuff really. So even when they did cover us, even if the writer was somewhat cool their editor was so square and would make (laughs) them okay well you got to create a conflict here otherwise there's no story so there's a lot of pitting of girls against each other in these articles yeah that's still happening too yeah right (laughs) you're right and a lot of people making other bands like putting them in the riot girl box when they didn't want to be so that in a way pitted us against each other it made them be like no we're not riot girls and almost seemed to diss us. But I think it was all kind of media created, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so we didn't see a use for the media. Of course, you know, down the road years later, I worked in print media for years and now other types of media. But anyways, if you want people to go to your shows, you want to sell your records or have your persona, your brand, you know, you got to get some press. That's kind of what I was reading is that it became sort of a catch-all for any band that was female fronted or mostly made up of women, did they really fit within that label? And also like the fear of having also just people who were well-to-do and well-off or maybe not really coming from the same grassroots origin that you all were infiltrating and like trying to use the moment and the popularity of it to kind of amplify themselves or use it as sort of a marketing tool Did you notice that at any point or was there anything that like you and your friends were upset about in regards to its popularity? We saw a lot of that. There was some opportunistic stuff going on, but I guess mostly we just felt like the media was kind of profiting off of us. There was a lot of backlash from guys who really wanted to kind of defang and declaws and make it just a fad or a fashion plate thing. And I felt like there was a lot of guys who just couldn't wait for it to all fall apart. We never set out with a clear agenda or clear goals or anything very defined. And so it did kind of disintegrate into a heap (laughs) at the end. That's kind of funny because it's similar to what's going on with the account that I run. It's like the media really does try to make the most money off of it. And then there are also a lot of men who would like to see my page go down because it is not a male-centric narrative that is happening with my page or because I am reporting on new scenes cropping up or revivals and they wish that they were kind of at the forefront of reporting on that. So basically what I'm saying is I guess nothing has changed. So, But Riot Girl was a movement that was built out of not feeling like there was a space for women in the punk scene and that it was mostly male-dominated and there was a lot of gatekeeping going on. Oh, for real? Even though I think a lot of progress has been made, a lot of that stuff is still happening, but maybe in more subtle ways. But, you know, and a lot of the people I've interviewed for my podcast, I'm in the band, we've talked about this. Yeah. Because I pretty much only interview people who are marginalized in some way or the other, mostly women. And they'll talk about how maybe they'll finally somehow be allowed to play a festival 
And then when that day comes, they're getting paid way less than the straight white cis men. Yeah. They're still just like almost tokenized on the bill. You know, there's not many. They're just, oh, we can have one girl band or two maybe. But at the same time, their faces are used for promotion to sell the event. And even if not by the organizer, the media definitely wants to showcase something more interesting, right? Or unusual. Mm -hmm. And it's like people think that press equals money and it doesn't. It doesn't (laughs) at all these days. (laughs) Even being asked to do things in more recent years, it's like you're an afterthought. Oh, you know, we have one slot left. Okay, we better have some kind of diversity on this bill. Let's see if whatever band she's in can do it. And then, of course, we're getting the bottom billing and the lowest pay, you know, (laughs) just like, you know, you're made to feel lucky. Oh, you're lucky to even be here. Yeah. Or made to feel like you're the thing to make themselves look good when they didn't actually put that much effort into it. Yeah. So Riot Girl became a globalized movement with such a big impact. Did you ever meet people years later who thanked you for the contributions you made and for inspiring them to pick up an instrument and making them feel like? They could do it too. Yeah. I always laugh when they say that. I'm like, I bet we made you feel like you could do it too. Because <laughs> I felt like we could hardly play anything at the time. Yeah, no. I mean, it happens a lot and I'm very honored. It kind of makes it all worthwhile to hear that. And I'm wishing that I had had a little bit more of that to look up to. Part of it, I guess, is I didn't have older siblings. I was the oldest, so I didn't have anyone to kind of show me cool music. But also, I think, you know, it's pre-internet era. So it's just harder to find your heroes or your foremothers in punk music and stuff. And if you could, those records were so rare. You had to go to someone's house and they had to play the records for you or make you a mixtape and send it in the mail. (laughs) So that was kind of how we found out about stuff. But yeah, back in the 90s, I would have laughed if you said that, oh, people are going to write their college theses on this, <laughs> you know, or that it will become an academic class or that we'd be considered in any serious or academic way or historical way. I would have been like, what? It's surprising. But at the same time, maybe not because everyone needs to see themselves reflected back in order to feel like they can do it, too. So there was a time, though, when Riot Girl was getting all this press and it started being heavily commercialized and appropriated by record companies and brands and big pop bands like the Spice Girls. So what was that like seeing this happen? Oh, yeah, it drove me crazy at the time. It was like you go to Urban Outfitters and they'd be playing all sorts of fake Riot Girl bands. And a lot of the outfits we wore, they would have reproduced, you know, the kind of scoop neck baseball shirts and things like that, whatever. There was so much copying and marketing and selling back at a way higher price of our imagery, our clothing, our sound, our slogans, right? So girl power was definitely a Riot Girl slogan. And I'm sure it wasn't the Spice Girls personally who took that, some marketing person or whatever. But still, yeah, it was just like, you can't just take that and claim that, especially in a mainstream watered down level. So I kind of hated them for a while. But then it was one time I was at my mom's and her neighbor was talking about years later, having to take her daughter to a Spice Girls concert in Seattle that night. So we were talking about it. And I was like, you know, they always bothered me. But at the same time, I think about when I was her age, what did I have to look up to? Duran Duran. Now, did Duran Duran make me feel like I could get up there and do it too? No. 
were they promoting girl love and friendship? No. So I'm like, Spice Girls, on the other hand, might inspire some girls to get up there too. And they, their songs were, you know, my friends. Yeah. <laughs> so my girlfriends. So, you know, I kind of softened up a bit and was like, oh, okay, it has its place. I definitely didn't see myself as ever being able to be part of the Spice Girls, but I definitely was radicalized by the girl power, Jerry Holloway, like the way that she would scream at everyone. But then it would be interesting for me later in life to get into a lot more punk music and then seeing where that originated from and the long legacy behind that and seeing how much it did influence the Spice Girls. So you technically brought the Spice Girls girl power message to my generation. <laughs> Even if you didn't get paid or credited for it, it was... <laughs> Right. And ultimately, that's also what the media did, right? You know, so even though it felt to us like all watered down and co-opted and whatever, it still reached people and did make a difference in people's lives who we never would have reached in a DIY way. So yeah, that's fine. That's What's... fine. <laughs> Wait, can I ask a question? You're Canadian. Are you Canadian? Yeah, I'm from Toronto. Yes. I could just hear it in your voice. Is it because I said a boot? <laughs> you did it. No, and it's not even a boot. I, I always want to like, it's like an O sound. It's not a O, right? It's a boat. Yeah. That's what that's I just true. always like to correct people on. Not you, not a Canadian, but an American who's trying to make fun of it. But no, my twin sister city lives in Toronto. Oh, nice. Yeah. And my brother-in-law, Reg Harkama, who's a film director and film editor. And she does um, archival research and stuff for music documentaries. And anyways, so I just was like, wait, are they from Toronto? <laughs> you can hear the Canadian swell. That's what they call it when we kind of like, you know, you're, it's your turn to speak when the person kind of ends on like an up note or something or a down. I can't remember which one it is. But yeah, apparently we have a very like melodic way that we speak that is very different. It is. So, and and I noticed it. Yeah. Well, also, it's, hopefully it's cute. <laughs> oh, I like it. And you enunciate better. That's for sure. Thank you. What's one song that you're super excited to play this summer with Bratmobile? Well, you know, actually, we are going to play a song that's not ours. It's, I guess, technically a cover. But because Aaron Smith, our guitarist, isn't going to play with us this time around, Sadly, unfortunately, we would love it if she would, but she can't. But we are having Rose Melberg from Tiger Trap play guitar. Oh, nice. We're going to do a Tiger Trap song. We're going to play Supreme Nothing, which is my favorite Tiger Trap song. Oh, amazing. So that's exciting. We're going to do Girlfriends Don't Keep, which is one that I don't know if we ever played it live, to be quite honest. And then we're going to do Queenie, which I also don't really remember playing live very much. So the deep cuts. Yeah, a little bit of deep cut. We're also going to do a Molly sung song. Oh, nice. Yeah, Molly sang a song on our last record. The song is called Pagan Baby. So we're going to do that too. Are you going to do Cool Shmuel? Oh, yeah. Well, of and course. Real Genial. Yeah. <laughs> Those well, are some of my favorites <laughs> for sure. Yeah, Janelle. Oh, my God. We had to change the key of it because <laughs> I couldn't hit the notes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I probably shouldn't admit that. That's the punk thing is to admit it. <laughs> Well, I was so embarrassed that I couldn't hit the notes, but I actually went home and listened to it again from the record we recorded in 93. And I was like, you know what? I actually couldn't hit the notes then. <laughs> we should have changed the key back then because I wasn't hitting the notes then. I went down an octave. So whatever. If a Bratmobile song could be featured in like one movie, what movie would that be and who would it be directed by? 
I don't know, like rock and roll high school or better yet, rock and roll high school forever. Have you seen that? <laughs> I haven't seen the forever. No, it's with the Corey's Corey Haim and Corey Feldman. It's so good. You got to see it. I'm going to go watch it after this. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. I love it. Or maybe Detroit Rock City, although I don't know where we'd fit in there. That's a good movie. <laughs> I know. I love that movie. I'm trying to think what else would be really great. Well, I love like Killing Eve. That would be cool to have oh, a yeah, song in a there. Great show. I also loved Dead to Me. It's really great. All stuff I guess I binged during the pandemic, I suppose. And also the what's the one that's um the one with Nicole Kidman and Big Little Lies? Yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good show. You know what I always wanted to see? I wanted to see, you know, the movie Matilda. I feel like Matilda would listen to Riot Girl music for sure. <laughs> Oh, I liked her pics in the film, but she was such a rebel. There's no way she wasn't listening to some like punk rock. Or how about this? I'm just going to be catty for a second. Moxie. Oh, yeah. Why were we not in that movie? I don't know. It was all you about Riot been... Girl. I'm just going to say it again. Bratmobile should have been on the soundtrack. It should have been for sure. I actually remember watching that movie and having a few issues with <laughs> Some of the way it was represented, so. You watched it? I wouldn't even watch it. I did watch it. It was okay. Amy Poehler tried. She tried her best as director. But yeah, I just didn't feel like it captured it enough. And I found that there were some elements of it that were almost like a little upsetting. But <laughs> I'm sure it's better than a lot of crap out there. But in good try, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Wrapping up sort of, I have like a few questions left for you. Do you see any new struggles that like the LGBTQ plus communities are facing now that maybe they weren't a decade or two ago? Oh, gosh. You know, progress and decline and all that, they don't really exist on a linear continuum or something. It's on a continuum, but it's not linear. Yeah. I was just talking to someone who um, I think is going to be our sound person, and they were like, I think it might get worse. Yeah. But also, I would like to say like, Two decades ago, maybe a little bit more, there wasn't marriage equality. Yeah. So I do know that. I do remember that. But basically what's happening now is cis, white, old man, rich guy, whatever. It's like their last stand, right? Their last yeah. hurrah. And they're going to go down fighting. It's false. But they think they're, oh, we're losing everything. Oh, we're going <laughs> to go extinct. And we better like inflict our values on everyone and they know they're in the minority yeah and they know that society has changed quite a bit and that no one hardly agrees with them anymore but through trickery and cheating and stealing and all sorts of stuff they have managed to sometimes get in the majority and have their way when they aren't a majority but they politically have basically stolen power yeah and are dictating all sorts of horrible laws. It's really racist. It's really homophobic. It's really transphobic. It's really sexist. All of it. It pretty much hurts everyone unless you're like one of that small minority of super privileged, you know? Yeah. It's ridiculous. They are in no way, shape, and form even close to a majority. But it's hard to figure out how to take back power when... The people in power really have no legitimate right to their power. Yeah. And so it's like, well, they lied, cheated, and stole their way there. So wait, how do we deal with this? I think you start a punk band and you make scenes and you spread your message. Yeah, I hit the streets. I feel like young people, at least, are so much more aware now, you know, and, and yeah. so much more politicized and intersexual and all this stuff. 
But at the same time, I would like to say a lot of the stuff that's being discussed in kind of semi-mainstream circles now, we were talking about it back then. It just was super underground. Yeah, you paved the way for a lot of people to see themselves in media, technically. So I mean, even if we didn't pave the way, we were like reading the books of the people who paved the way and we were talking, discussing. Yeah, but you're passing it along, right? Like that's how it works. And it's really admirable what you all did because it made so many young people, specifically young women, young LGBTQ plus people have hope and feel like, okay, I can see myself fitting yeah. in somewhere. Yeah. That's some people's lifeline. So just have two questions left for you. What was the first Bratmobile song that you finished and you were like, this is it. I'm making it as an artist, essentially, or like I am a singer songwriter. I can't exactly remember which was first, but Girl Germs lyrics, maybe, and tune, or some special. One of those two, I think, were first. But then we had a song called Teenager. Yes. I think it ended up on some random mixed cassette called Wonderful Tree or something. But I don't think we ever played Teenager live. You should play it. Molly brought it up, I know. And I was like, oh my God, I forgot all about that song. All I remember is it's like, I'm a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, it's like, I don't want to be your piece of rhubarb. I don't want to be that high-strung sour. Something, something, something. I'm a teenager. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> what things keep you creating and just like inspired every day? Every day? <laughs> Do I have to be inspired every day? Well, just what you look to on days where you're feeling like you can't find inspiration in the world around you, but you so badly are seeking it. Like, what is something you turn to to find inspiration from? Like an activity or a song or a craft or whatever? Well, I am really behind on a lot of podcast work. And sometimes when I just feel a little down or I need some inspiration, I actually find a lot of inspiration from storytelling, from listening to other people's stories, especially the people I've interviewed. And it's like, wait, I need to transcribe this interview, listening to and reading their stories over and over and over again. I find that really inspiring. So whoever it is I'm working on at the time, whether it be like Viv Albertine or The Raincoats or Mecca Normal or Brontez Purnell from Gravy Train. Yes. He was on the pod not too long ago. Oh, he's funny. Storytelling kind of reminds us what's human in all of us and how we survived and thrived despite whatever and also what connects us. It's also kind of what makes things worth fighting for, right? Yeah. There's an Instagram account called My So-Called Queer Life. You should check it out. There's a lot of stuff of you on there, and it's really cool. It's like a nice little archive. I've seen them before. Do I not follow them? You've probably them? been tagged. Oh, maybe they tagged me. Yeah, for sure they did. They have the poster here from Mosswood Meltdown, so they're repping you hard. I'm like, I'm going to follow them now. It's really interesting. Oh, I'm following. Yeah, there you go. I thought so. Right. <laughs> Shouts out to my so-called queer life on Instagram. My last question for you is, did you help edit the punk rock themed manga series, Nana? Oh, that's so cool that you found out about that. Well, okay, kind of. But it's more like I was hired basically as an English adaptation, like rewriter, there would be a Japanese translator who would send me her translation and then I would rewrite it to be kind of like 
hip and cool and like kind of street talky or whatever, you know, my version of young people talking. So I kind of rewrote it. And that was really fun. I love that series. Me too. Yasawa Ai, who's the author. She wrote the storylines and did the drawings, which I think also made it super top notch that she was in control of all of it. Her storylines were super real. And she was so good at drawing the expressions in their faces and body language and lots of serious themes and super girl power. I don't know. I loved it. So I'm so happy I got to do that. I got recruited to do that. So that was really nice. Yeah. Another manga that is kind of not the same, but kind of got that vibe is Fooly Cooly. You should check that one out. I think they just go by the acronym, though. It's like FLCL, but that one's really cool. Could picture you also doing the English translation as well. Though I think they already have someone. But yeah, no, it was so cool reading that you uh, helped edit that manga series because it's really good. It's really popular over here too. So I loved it. And I was so bummed when she stopped. Yeah. But oh, well, maybe she'll come back again someday. Yeah, you never know. We can manifest it. (laughs) I hope. There's an anime convention happening just down the street from me few weeks from now it's very popular here in Toronto so oh is it every year it's every year yeah and it's packed well I'm long overdue to get to Toronto the last time I was there was oh my gosh more than five years ago I don't want to say when but it was for a certain birthday my sister's always like no one ever visits me here (laughs) so it's high time I get there to be fair it's an expensive city so No one would blame you. Well, I could stay in their big haunted house in Parkdale. It's haunted? Well, it seems haunted. (laughs) (laughs) It looks like Halloween never left, so. That's amazing. Well, it's been so great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. It's such an honor to be speaking to you, and it's so great to be in the presence of such an amazing person. So thank you for all that you've done. You've helped a lot of people and inspired a lot of people, so I'm excited for you to go on tour the summer and play some shows. That's going to be really awesome. And you're going to have a great time. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I love talking. As you can probably tell, I hope you can get something out of it. That's great if you're a podcaster. That's <laughs> Maybe. You got to love talking. So <laughs> Unless you interrupt your guests too much. But yeah. <laughs> no, you're a great interviewer. Your podcast is great. So actually for listeners, make sure to check out Allison Wolf's podcast. I'm in the band on all streaming platforms. And also make sure to follow her. Oh, wait, you're not on all streaming platforms? Well, okay, I'm just going to say this. It's on Tidal, which has a paywall, but you can get all of the episodes on Tidal's YouTube channel for free. Okay, cool. Or you can go to my website, which is allisoncwolf.com, and I've got links to listen to all of my podcasts that I've ever done and radio stories and everything, and that's all free. We'll make sure to link that in the description for this episode and in the Instagram post as well. Cool. And make sure followers to also follow Allison on Instagram at Real Baby Donut. Yeah. <laughs> so cool that you're a teacher too. So hello to your students and hope they're having fun listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Actually, I hope they're working on their non-narrated audio story assignment right now. Yeah. If you're listening to this, you should get back to work if you're distracting yourself with something else. Well, thank you so much and see you later. Okay. Bye. See you later.